We have been moving through Acts of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the proper name for the book. Traditionally, it's called Acts of the Apostles. But really, the ones who are acting is Jesus and the Holy Spirit through Jesus' followers through the church. And it started in Jerusalem. Acts uh, 1.8, we hear Jesus saying, Stay in Jerusalem and you will receive power and the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so after being in Jerusalem for a season, the church starts moving out in concentric circles. Then it was in all Judea and Samaria. And now uh, last week we heard from Pastor Mark, who I kept calling Pastor Paul in the first service. Pastor Mark. We heard about how uh, the church's center point moved from Jerusalem to this city called Antioch. And that this was, this was the church that uh, had both Jews and Gentiles in it. The gospel is now moving beyond just the Jewish-speaking people and is now expanding to all the earth. And it's interesting to think about that because prior to the Holy Spirit coming on Pentecost, the only people who really knew God were Jewish people or, or people who, who learned about the Jewish faith. Because God's word is in the Holy Scriptures that's for his chosen people, Israel. Up until the time of the coming of the Holy Spirit, up until the time of Jesus, everyone's idea of who God is or, or, or what it is that, that um, uh, how you can get to know God was from their own imaginations. Um, and so they were worshiping all kinds of things. When you don't know the one true God, you will make worship out of everything. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if a person is an atheist or not. They are still worshiping something because what you worship is what you're devoted to. And it's what you are obedient to. Whatever that is, that is what you are worshiping. So if you're not worshiping the one true God, you're worshiping a God of your own making. An idol. And so... Here in Antioch, suddenly the gospel is being revealed to the Goyim, to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people, to the barbarians. Most likely all of us, unless you're ethnically Jewish, it's talking to you from Antioch. And that's what it means to the end of the earth. The gospel is not limited to any specific location anymore. God is loose and he's coming to get all of those who he calls into new life through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if you see our map, you notice it's a map of the United States, but you got to look at the phone. You see there's a map of the entire world there. It's because the gospel is not limited. And it's because of Acts 1.8 and what we've heard up to this point, that mandate, that the United States, 2,000 years later, that we know about Jesus. It's because the first generation was faithful to the calling that God had given them to be witnesses. And the mandate of Acts 1 verse 8 has not come to an end. You all have it as well. You are set apart. And you have a set apart purpose. Now, you may be surprised to hear this, and I've said this to you before. Two things I want you to remember. First of all, who is God putting on your heart to invite to church or to be a witness to, to share the love of Jesus with? That's the first thing. The second thing is there's an absolute necessity for this because you have been set apart in a time and a place that has more in common with the first century church than it does with Atonement Lutheran Church, December 31st, 1999. The culture has become so worldly 
and it has forgotten about Jesus that more and more every year we're discovering that this group known as the nuns, and I'm not talking about uh, Catholic women who take a monastic vow and, and put on the habit, but N-O-N-E-S, people who say they have no religious belief, no religious affiliation, what they mean is they don't belong to any church and they're not sure who God is. You start to see it in the culture because the culture begins looking for God in every place but where God promises to be. Maybe you've heard this in the culture. I was just watching TV last night. I was watching an episode of Friends, and Friends was on way back, like, you know, 2000s. And in there, there was this line to say, oh, universe, if only the universe would give me this. That's how the nuns speak, or people who don't know God speak. They look to goodness to come to them in all of the wrong places, and they give credit, they worship and idolize uh, these places to receive blessing that should be given to God. Now, in Acts 13, verse 1, we're going to hear about what's happening in the church in Antioch, and I want to lift up some things to you. The first it says is, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. And you might think, yeah, they had prophets in the, in the New Testament. What happened to all the prophets? The mistake that people often make is to separate these into categories of offices of ministry, and there was no prophet or teacher office of ministry. These are roles within the church that are not limited to an office. Now, an office of ministry is someone who is called to a specific service on behalf of the church. Your pastor, your missionary, those type of positions. Your elected officers to the church board. Those are all uh, offices of ministry. Prophets and teachers, this is actually, um, these, are, these are not two different categories. It's speaking about the roles of these five leaders in the church. That they are both prophets and teachers. And you might say, well, what does that mean to be a prophet and a teacher? I heard about prophets in the Old Testament. But what is that? It's a separation of communication. Think of prophet as someone who uses hortatory speech. Say that with me. Hortatory. Beautiful. It means to exhort, to encourage, to announce, to point. There is something important that you need to know, and that's what a prophet does. In the Old Testament, the prophet would speak the word of God. Thus says the Lord, da-da-da-da-da. It was never an office of ministry, uh, so to speak. During the kingdom of David, there was, there was uh, the, the, the office of prophets, but it was only for a limited time. Rather, prophets were lifted up by the Lord and were usually just ordinary people that God would say, go and tell this to those who are in power. The office of ministry was the priest or the Levitical priests, okay? So what does a prophet do? I'm going to give you an example. This is what hortatory speech looks like. Yes! Behold my Lord Ulrich, the rock, the hard place. Like a wind from Goldland, he sweeps by, blown far from his homeland in search of glory and honor. We walk in the garden of his turbulence. <laughs> yeah! 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 
All right, so that's what a prophet sounds like. They're pointing to a specific thing. Something urgent is happening in your midst. That's hortatory speech. That's exhortation. It's encouragement. It's saying, now is the time. Right now, check this out. Okay? Thus says the Lord. But along with that, these men are not only prophets saying God is doing a new thing. They're also teachers. They use didactic speech. Didactic speech means to instruct or to teach teachers. It's kind of like this guy. In 1930, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, in an effort to alleviate the effects of the, anyone, anyone, the Great Depression, passed the, anyone, anyone, the tariff bill, the Hawley-Smoot Tariff Act, which anyone raised or lowered, raised tariffs, in an effort to collect more revenue for the federal government. Did it work? Anyone? Anyone know the effects? It did not work, and the United States sank deeper into the Great Depression. I cannot tell you how many times I've seen this look from my own daughters. <laughs> I, have been, I have been accused many a time, in fact, today I was accused of this by Pastor Becky, that, DJ, that's you, you're didactic all the time. Guilty as charged. These, these five leaders were both prophets and teachers. They were able to recognize, and this is the role of preaching, of saying, now is the time. God is doing something in your midst right now, and then explaining what that means. That's the, that's the gospel. That's the good news, the New Testament, the New Covenant. God no longer will stand for the powers of sin, death, the devil, evil, ruling in your lives. He's come to deliver those whom he calls by name, all of you, to be set apart as children of God with a specific purpose. And that specific purpose is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those in your life. Who are you praying for? Uh, who is God putting on your heart to be a witness to? That's what I'm talking about. Because all of us have this calling to be prophets and teachers. Okay? Now, oh, I want to lift up. Now, a little bit about these five guys. This is really interesting to me, and I hope this is my didactic coming out at this point. But I want to share with you who these five are, okay? So Barnabas... His name is Joseph. He's called Joseph Barnabas. Barnabas means son of exhortation, son of encouragement, or son of the prophet or prophecy. Okay? He obviously had a great uh, ability to gather people's attention and point to Jesus. Okay? But along with him was this guy, very interesting name, Simeon, who was called Niger or Niger however you want to pronounce that. It's a Latin word that means dark or black. What's interesting about this guy is that this is a Hebrew name, Simeon. There's another person who has this name in the Gospel of Luke called Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is in North Africa. It's just west of Egypt. It's just south of the Holy Land, southwest uh, of the Holy Land. And Simon of Cyrene is the one who is called to carry the cross for Jesus, remember? Well, someone who has a very similar name. Now, this is circumstantial evidence here, okay? But someone who has a very similar name is mentioned at the Church of Antioch as one of the preachers and uh, one of the prophets, one of the prophets and teachers or preachers, okay? Next to him is a guy named Lucius of Cyrene, also North Africa, Cyrene. And earlier we heard about in Antioch, 
wherever the gospel was being spread, they'd go to synagogues first and preach just to the Jews. But in Antioch, there were some people from Cyrene, like Lucius and Simeon, who were preaching to Gentiles too. Now, what's interesting about this guy is, I want you to think about this. Who is, what is the name of the, of the author of the book of Acts, okay? You don't need to say it out loud, but just, I want you to know what that name is. Think about it. He also wrote one of the Gospels. If you gave someone uh, a nickname whose name was Lucius, what would it be? I don't know, maybe Luke? We know that St. Luke was from Antioch. Now, is he Lucius of Cyrene? We don't know, but it seems coincidental that one of the leaders in the church in Antioch, who later will travel with the Apostle Paul, never named in Acts, happens to show up in the list of leaders in the church in Antioch. Okay? Luke of Cy- Lucius of Cyrene. Okay? So he's North African and one of the leaders in the church in Antioch. Now, along with them is a man named Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, Herod the Tetrarch, I'm going to skip ahead of Menaean, but Herod the Tetrarch, we hear a Herod name. We've got a couple of Herods in the Bible. Herod the Tetrarch is Herod Antipas. He's the one who ordered uh, John the Baptist to have his head chopped off, and he wanted to meet Jesus. He's in the Gospels at the end. He's not Herod the Great. who's at the beginning uh, of uh, when Jesus is born. But Menaean grew up in Herod's household. This word, a member of the court, the word is foster brother. So he grew up in the household of Herod. He was obviously from an aristocratic family, and would have known about uh, all the things happening in the court of the Herods. This is the guy by which we get all of the information that Luke would have gotten. All the information that he shared about Herod Antipas and the Herod family. This guy right here. And finally we have Saul. Saul is, as we know, the author of a good chunk of the New Testament. We know him by Paul. This is his Hebrew name. During this chapter, uh, Acts 13 and 14, that you heard read, is when he goes officially from being called Saul to Paul. Why is that? Paul is his Roman name, and he's speaking to Gentiles, not Jews. And so they would more easily recognize Paul. He was, a, he was Jewish, but he was also a Roman citizen which gave him certain um, inroads into the wider society, okay? So now, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Isn't this how church is supposed to be? Maybe not fasting, but we come together, we worship the Lord, and we trust the Lord's guidance as a church. This is what we call a mission and a vision, and we trust that, that God is guiding us. We're going to decide this today by the people at our annual meeting, the congregation, the ecclesia, voting on the mission plan for the next year. That's basically the church budget. You need to think of it as this is the mission plan by which we... we um, are discerning that the Holy Spirit is leading us. Now, you've lifted up leaders throughout the year, your pastors, your leadership staff, your, your, your staff as a whole, as well as the board. And we're going to be bringing to the congregation a mission plan or a ministry plan for the next year that we call our budget that you then vote on. And hopefully you are all praying and discerning, and all of us are together, the will of the Holy Spirit moving into 2024. Here it says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, this is called a calling. A calling is a strong feeling to do a particular work, the work that a person does or should be doing. You all have callings. 
The way you know that you have a calling is, is twofold. One, do you trust that God is your God? If you do, then understand that what you feel called to do, the work that you do, is a calling. Maybe some of you feel called to be a mom or a dad. Maybe some of you called to be a bus driver or, or a farmer or a lawyer or a doctor or a school teacher. Whatever you're, you feel called to do, the work that you're supposed to be doing, that's a calling. But also, your job, whatever it may be, even if it's not what you feel like you want to do, if it's where God needs you to be, when you look at it as a calling, it makes it better. One of the best jobs I ever had was working at the ground round as a busboy for three months. I moved to Fargo, didn't have a job, started, uh, uh, basically was running out of money after a couple of weeks because I couldn't find a job in Fargo. Can you believe that? There was no jobs. Went to the ground round, went to eat, and there, I, they, at the end of my meal, they said, what, what else can we get you? I said, I'd love a job. They hired me that day to be a busboy and a dishwasher. And I decided, having moved across the country, I came here because I believe God was leading me here. I also believe God blessed me with this job. I was going to see this as a calling, and I was going to um, uh, try to be a witness for Jesus as best as I could. Now, I wasn't going and proselytizing anyone as I was cleaning up their tables, but I was loving them. I was smiling. I was, I was uh, seeking to be encouraging. And in so doing, it was one of the best jobs I ever had. Met my beloved there. She hasn't been able to get rid of me since. <laughs> but what made it so enjoyable, even though it was hard work and, 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 and kind of low-rung work as the world would look at it, was because I believe God was with me. And that when my time was done there, I would be called to do something else, which, which was the case. If you feel that way about your job, if you feel disillusioned or unhappy with your job, I hope you're praying to God to say, Lord, reveal to me what I should, should be doing. But then, while you wait for the next opportunity to come, you stay in the job that you're in and you recognize that the Lord has called me here for a season. Why? To be set apart for the purpose of being a witness to those around me of the love that I have in Jesus. Because the world doesn't know it anymore. More and, more and more of the world does not know who Jesus is. Even here in Fargo, Moorhead, we're getting to the point where only half or less than half of the population knows who Jesus is. And this is coming across the world. So it's time for the church to be bold in our speaking and to recognize that we have callings. All of you do. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, here the church is going to do something to commission into an office of ministry. Remember I said earlier, preachers and teachers are not offices of ministry. They're roles, they're skills of communication that the Holy Spirit blesses his people with. And you don't have to be a pastor to have that. But here... Barnabas and Saul are chosen for offices of ministry. And the way the church calls them is they discern that the Holy Spirit is doing this and then they, they validate the call of the Holy Spirit upon an individual by laying hands on, on them and saying, yes, you have this authority. Because an office of ministry is about a specific authority that's not above you, but it's about responsibilities uh, for a specific service to you. So you have called three pastors. You've also called and commissioned two uh, missionaries. Our missionaries are currently carrying out their authority in, in the Congo. That's Tom and Eunice. But then you have three pastors that you have called to serve you in a specific role, which is to preach and teach to you, to um, prophesy and teach you the gospel. That's what 
myself, Pastor Mark, and Pastor Becky are called to do. And that's what is happening here. Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas are having hands laid on them and then they're being given an office of ministry that was available in the first century. It's the office of apostle. That's what that word means. Uh, they laid hands on them and apostled them off. They sent them off. We're going to see that they're given this title uh, very shortly. Okay? That's what is called a call, capital C. Myself, Pastor Becky, Pastor Mark, we all have letters of call capital C-A-L-L. This is not a calling. A calling is inward by the Holy Spirit. A call is outward validation and responsibility given to individuals for a specific purpose in serving the church, chosen by the church to serve in an office of ministry, such as pastor. Okay? Prophet and teacher are not offices of ministry. Now, what are they being called and sent out to do? This is the first missionary journey. This is what we've heard about. They leave Antioch. Down here is Egypt. Over here is North Africa. And here is Turkey. And they travel down to Cyprus, then up and around. It takes two years, and they're in Lystra. Lystra is a really interesting place. It's where we heard the story that Pastor Becky read, okay? Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. Now from the witness of Saul and Barnabas, or Paul as he's known now, in Lystra, God does some amazing things. He calls into the faith three saints that are incredibly important. Eunice, Lois, and Tim. Eunice and Lois are the mother and grandmother of Timothy. We have two letters written to, written to Timothy by Paul, First and Second Timothy, and Timothy ends up becoming the bishop or the pastor of Ephesus. We have one letter written to Ephesus called the letter to the Ephesians, and in the congregation in Ephesus was a real famous guy who loved Jesus, known as the beloved disciple John the Evangelist. He wrote the Gospel of John, First, Second, and Third John, and Revelation. And in Revelation, Ephesus is also mentioned. And according to tradition who lived in John's household, but a, a real famous celebrity of the church, Mary, the mother of our Lord. Can you imagine having her at the annual meeting? Wow. All because God sent them to Lystra and the faith was implanted in Eunice, Lois, and Timothy. This is the moment that that happens. We don't hear about them. They show up later, but this is the moment. They were there. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well. People misunderstand what this means. They think that if you have enough faith, if you can lift up enough faith, then God will heal you and give you all that you want. That's the old religion. It's the religion of the opinio legis that everybody who doesn't know Jesus functions by. It's if I can just figure out how to get right with God, then I'll be right. I'll have everything that I want. I'll be able to placate God. I'll never have any problems. That's not what this says. It says he had faith to be saved. The issue was this person hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and believing it. The healing was secondary. But the secondary healing becomes a sign as to what is happening. God is showing up in the midst of a people who do not know God. He said in a loud voice, stand up right on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Lystra was the patron city of Zeus. And so they had a temple of Zeus there. And the thinking was that God, or Zeus, physically resided in that temple. It wasn't a house of worship. It wasn't like a church. The temple was God's embassy on earth, wherever that may be. And in this case, this is Zeus, the Greek god of the heavens, the, the big god. 
His home was in Lystra and there was a statue of Zeus in there. And so the people think, oh, the gods have come down. And they began to call Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. Hermes is the messenger of the Greek gods. And Zeus is the, is the big god. He's the god of the sky because he was the chief speaker. And when the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Why did they want to offer sacrifice? Because something scary has shown up that's beyond our power and the opinio legis kicks in and these people who don't know God are trying to placate these powers that they have no control over. This is no different than anyone who doesn't know the Lord. They seek to placate those powers that be to give them the things that they want and not to bring them harm. But when the apostles, see they're now named, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they were they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We're not here in the form of gods for you to give us what we want. We bring you good news. We've come to serve you by giving you the gospel, that God has come near to you in his son, Jesus Christ. No longer is the one true God hidden, but he has revealed himself in Jesus. Forget these vain things that you've been worshiping. Because everything that we worship that's not God is vanity because it will all go away. Even the best things. If what matters more to you than anything, if you idolize family and country and friends, those are all wonderful things. Those are all great things. But they're vanity because they'll come to an end. That's the distinction. Turn from these vain things. Don't worship a, a, a statue that's dead in, in a building because you want it to give you good stuff. Come to know the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Zeus is not the Lord of heaven. Gaia is not the mother of earth. And Poseidon is not the Lord of the sea. It is the one true God who is the Lord over all of these things who made heaven and earth. In past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. God remained hidden in his word only for his chosen people, Israel. But no longer will you need to walk in your own ways because the way has come near. The way, the truth, and the life. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. Death has no dominion over him, sin has no power over him, and the devil cannot subjugate him. He's come to set you free. He's come to set you apart. He did not leave himself without witness, even though he didn't know who he was through nature itself. He, did, he showed his goodness, which you thought was, was these false things, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God does not leave you without a witness. And today, in Fargo, North Dakota, at this time, in this place, within history, you have been set apart with the purpose of being the witness to point to God. When the world looks at good and bad tidings and says, I hope the universe gives me good things, you are the one who can say, no, 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 no. Jesus loves you. God loves you. He sent his son for you. Your sins are forgiven. Come and receive the gospel. Come and receive the Holy Spirit and re receive the goodness of God. You have a set-apart purpose to point to Jesus for the sake of the world. And through your witness, the kingdom of God expands and grows and lives are changed and transformed. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for the sins of the world. He died for you. He died for your neighbor. Let them know that their sins are forgiven. Invite them into your life. Be that set-apart purpose you are called to be. Amen.